0: Evening Hope, open up to the book of Jude in your Bible. That's going to be the, the last one before you hit the book of Revelation. Really great to see you. If you are visiting or you're new or you've been sick and you're back after a while, we're very glad to all be in the house of God. Amen? Amen. The book of Jude is a, uh, is a, is a short and brief epistle from, from Jude and it packs a real punch. It's, uh, it's a call to action. It's a, it's a call to uh, faithful saints to contend for the faith to defend the faith, to to remain fast and firm in the fight for the faith, not not just your personal faith. It's not just a matter of individual perseverance, but the letter of Jude is written in such a way that, that the churches, that the individuals might gather together and rally in defense and contention for the faith. Once delivered for the saints. So, this is not just that individuals are are in a self defense mode. This is more of the idea that the the militia are rising from the populace to come up to defend their beloved holy motherland, if you will. This is the idea. We are are Christians who belong to a spiritual nation. We We have a king, the Lord Jesus. He has handed to us this word of God, which contains in it everything we need for life. And Godliness, it is our, our meat, it is our bread of life, it is our, 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 our greatest authority in the church, and so we stand firm on it and defend it with all that we have. We die for the truths that are written and bound up in this word of God, amen? We live by them, we die for them. That is the rule, and that is the example handed down to us from the apostles, who each of them gave their life for the gospel and the word, and of course, many of them who perished in their persecution and in their execution for their defense and proclamation of the word. So so Jude is going to be a, a call to action, particularly in his day. And if you go and read 2 Peter, you're going to see some portions that are pretty much lifted right up out of Jude. Or it goes the other way. We're not totally sure that Jude took segments of 2 Peter and pretty much wrote his own letter almost verbatim quoting from 2 Peter. It's not plagiarism. When you're pastors, you can just say, I've heard somebody say, and then say it all yourself, and people think it's from you. Jude is my example in that. And so, thank you for laughing to show that you don't believe that I actually do that. But but, but Jude has has written about the time when there there is a need for defense and for contending for the faith because there are false teachers and false teachings. And as we know, theology always finds its application in life. It's not just that if you're diligent, then you find application in your theological, no, theological application in your life. It is that you can't help but live out what you truly believe in your heart of hearts. And so this is why bad theology always hurts people. You can't have a bad view of God, the family, the church, the Bible, authority, sin. You can't have a bad view of that and it not afflicts souls, not, not torment and abuse souls. There are always victims of bad theology. And just as false teachers live consistently with their false teachings, so they live false lives. So that always, always, when there is a threat of doctrinal error, the viper that is also coiled up under that doctrinal error is, is temptation to gross sin, to, to, to wild sin, to a wildfire of sin, just ready to, to pounce out and attack. It's, it's so often that people will say uh, they'll try and hide their, their life of sin with something doctrinal. With something theological, you know, I would have stayed with my wife, but I just realized I read one day, I don't actually think the Bible's as inspired as we thought. You're a liar. You can't keep your pants on. You make a doctrinal excuse and away you go to sin and hell. It goes the other way. People are swept away into into doctrinal error and it opens up because truth leads to godliness. Error leads to satanic lifestyle, licentiousness, freedom to sin, however you want. Look at this. It says in verse 3, Beloved, I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation. I just wanted to write a nice letter, get on the same page, remind each other about our tremendous gospel that we believe. But I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. For this is why this is why I'm I'm strained and I must write to you to tell you to appeal to you to get up take your arms and fight for the faith to not be slack is because verse 4 for certain people have crept in unnoticed that's a that's a judgment on them already they should not have been unnoticed although it can happen they have crept in unnoticed who long ago were actually designated for this condemnation, ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality. Sensuality means to be living after your senses, what you feel, taste, touch, desire. They are turning the grace of God into sensuality and deny our only master and Lord, Jesus Christ. That sets up the, the tone for the for the letter. We're going to go to that verse end onwards next week, but tonight we're, we're just going to find ourselves in the first two verses. Here's the theme for the book. Jude is appealing to them to be contenders, to be fighters, to be defenders, to be proud patriots of the Christian religion. That is what he's calling for us to do because there was false teaching and false uh, uh Uh, sinful lifestyles that were being uh, propagated and allowed to exist within the church is what we'll go further, deeper into next week, what those teachings precisely were. But we're gonna start in verse one and two. Look at what he's, uh, in fact, I'll read it for us as is our custom, and then we will begin our exposition. (coughs) Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ and brother of James, to those who are called beloved in God the Father, and kept for Jesus Christ. May mercy, peace, and love be multi- multiplied to you. May God bless the reading of his own inerrant, powerful word in our midst this evening. Jude is the writer of this epistle. He introduces us right there. Jude, uh, coming into English out of the Greek, is the is the same root name as the name Judas. Uh, so, so we have about... Five or six, um, uh, depending how you count them, up to about eight people that are mentioned in the New Testament that are by the name of Judas or Jude. Only four of them were were known uh, within the Christian community. One of them, of course, is the most famous Judas that we all know. This is why I think Jude started calling his name Jude instead of Judas, because everybody hates to be known as the same name as the guy who betrayed Jesus. So Judas Iscariot was the betrayer. He was one of the 12 who fell away and killed himself. Secondly, there is Judas, the son of James. He was also one of the 12 disciples. He uh, was known by the, the other name Thaddeus, also found a reason to change his name, so he would not be uh, uh, known as Judas also. There's, there's some parts in the Gospels that just say Judas, not the betrayer. Uh, so he got sick of that. He preferred a, his own name, so Thaddeus he went by. Uh, he's mentioned in Luke 6 and Acts chapter 1. Uh, thirdly, there was Judas who is was also called Barsabbas? You'll just—everybody find, finds a different name other than Judas, because you don't know want to be called Judas. Uh, but he was also called Barsabbas, and he's mentioned in Acts 15. He was one of the prophets in New Testament times. And then, of course, there is Judas or Jude, the brother of Jesus and James. In Mark chapter six, verse three, people are hearing Jesus preach, and they say, "Is this not Jesus, who we know, who we grew up with? Or, is this not G- Jesus, the brother of James and Jude?" So, so, so James, who we have just finished reading and expositing the epistle of, the, the epistle of James, he became a pastor and wrote books for the, 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 the New Testament. His younger brother Jude, also a half-brother of the Lord Jesus um, through Mary, was another writer of, the, uh, uh, of Scripture. This Jude, this is the, as, as Jude himself says, I'm Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ and a brother of James. So we now have here the, the really the only James he would have been referring to that has enough of a famous name to not have to add a whole bunch of caveats and last names as to which James he's talking about. When he says, I'm brother of James, we have every reason, <coughs> and history backs us up, to believe that he's meaning James, the brother of Jesus. He calls himself the servant of Jesus Christ. Just like James, he doesn't start by saying, I'm the brother of Jesus. That's not his claim to fame or authority. He actually says, I am a servant of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now we hear that and we we might even know enough about the Greek culture to sort of throw in that that Roman idea, that idea that that if you're a slave, then then you belong to and you serve your master and, and so is the picture to the Lord Jesus for every Christian. But in the Jewish context, when you hear the phrase, a servant of blank, It is usually in the context of a a chosen person that you might read about in the Old Testament being a servant of God, a servant of the Lord, a servant of Yahweh. That was a frequent way that the, the great and mighty saints of the Old Testament were spoken about. You'll find Moses, who was called a servant of the Lord, as a prophet. You'll find David, who was spoken of as a servant of the Lord, as a king. And so here Jude is picking up that same nomenclature, that same idiom, that same language and saying that he is a servant of the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus is to Jude, this younger brother who grew up with him and then saw him resurrected after seeing him butchered on a tree. He believed in the Lord Jesus. And and he was not just an older brother according to the flesh that did some impressive things that he wanted to jump in onto the family business. It was not that at all. He recognized that Jesus was precisely who he preached himself to be, precisely who the Old Testament prophesied him to be, the prophet from God, the true message of God, the truth incarnate, the word in flesh. God himself, the great king, the great prophet, the eternal priest, he believed in Jesus as the Lord. And so should we. It is actually so so important that at this point, as we start getting into a book that addresses a lot of heresy, and a lot of, a lot of our, our language about the posture that Christians should have as we, as we travel against the grain in our culture, and as we have many, many onslaughts and fiery arrows from the devil, often coming through doctrinal false teaching, it is important we get from Jude this, this first foundational understanding. Jesus is God. We, we can get a little bit uncomfortable with that. Maybe you've grown up and you've heard a lot about God loves you and God wrote the Bible and all, the, all these ideas of God and you didn't grasp a good and fully orbed understanding of the Trinity, of, of, of what Scripture gives us, this ability to say that Jesus is God. Jesus is not the Father. Jesus is not the Spirit. The Spirit is not the Father. The the Father is God. The Son, who became Jesus, the human, is God. The Spirit is God. We have three eternal, infinite, co-equal beings. Uh, one being, three persons, co-equal persons in this one God. Jesus is God. Here is a a, a monotheistic. Jew who would never speak of, of, uh, of, of anything less than the eternal Yahweh from the Old Testament as being God unless the divine Holy Spirit had inspired him to do so and had brought him to faith in that Lord Jesus who is truly God. He's not saying that Jesus is Yahweh instead of the Father. He's not saying that Jesus is God alone as if we, are, we, we have this monopersonality about God. The Father is God. The Spirit is God. The Son is God. But the Son is He who became flesh, who became revealed to us. So He is the one to whom the Spirit directs our worship. No one can see God the Father. Never will we ever see God the Father, even into eternity, future in heaven and glory. The only one who we will see physically will be the Son in our form. That is what the Spirit will bring us to understand is the fullness of God in Jesus Christ. This is what the Father directs us to is His fullness in His Son, Jesus Christ. If you ever wish that you could just get a glimpse of the Father as well, the Bible has nothing but rebuke for you. You don't know what you're looking at in Jesus if you think there's anything left to see in the Father. The Father, his full personality, his full nature, exactly who he would be incarnate, is who Jesus is incarnate. The Bible is not apologetic about giving this title of God to Jesus Christ. He says, Jesus Christ. Jude is a servant of Jesus, the Messiah, the Christ. Every heresy, every serious heresy is most easily, easily identified, I think, if we start asking. And there's always a new funny name or a new funny group or a new funny leader or, or whatever they want to call themselves. But if you just get in a good habit of going to Jesus Christ... What do you believe about Jesus Christ? And all of the heresies start showing their face. What do you believe about the nature of Jesus, the eternality of Jesus, the divinity of Jesus, the atonement of Jesus, the life of Jesus, the resurrection of Jesus, the current heavenly session of Jesus? If you get under a good understanding of what the Bible says about those things, then you will be in a good place to battle many, many, many heresies, even though you haven't studied them. Every heresy goes eventually wrong on the person of Jesus. He is the core of our faith. He is the the sole focus of our faith. You should study the Lord Jesus Christ and get a good understanding of him that every other heresy may just be knocked flat by this cannonball of a doctrine. The divinity, the person, the nature, the work of Jesus Christ. This one doctrine lays flat the armies of the Mormons, destroys the JW's arguments, obliterates the Baha'i faith, ends all New Age spirituality. If we just understand the doctrine of Jesus, we would save ourselves from a hundred other doctrinal errors, such as God's plan and design to make all knowledge and wisdom culminate in Jesus Christ. If we need any verses to remind ourselves of the fact that Jesus is God, We can go to Matthew chapter 14, verse 33. I'll say them. You can write them down. You probably won't be able to get there fast enough. I know once I've just said that, you're competitive. You're going to try. That's fine. But I'm going to read it pretty quick. In Matthew chapter 14, verse 33, Jesus is worshipped. All those who were sitting in the boat, the verse says, after he has calmed it, were saying, truly you are the son of God, and they worshipped him. In Matthew 28 verse 9 and and verse 17, just before Jesus gives the great commission, the disciples are worshipping Jesus. In Hebrews 1 verse 6, we are told that God tells the angels to worship his son Jesus. When God commands you to never ever worship anything and anyone except Yahweh, the one true living God, and then in the same book commands you that you must give obeisance, obedience, and worship to Jesus Christ, you come to one conclusion. Jesus is Yahweh. He is the same God that the Father is, though a distinct person. Also, what we see in the New Testament, more proof that Jesus is God, is that the New Testament apostles apply Old Testament verses about Yahweh So when you're reading your Old Testament and if you don't have uh, 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 MacArthur's new translation that's blanking on me right now, if you don't have that one, then you'll still be reading the the capital L-O-R-D and where you see capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D, that's just English transliteration of God's name. Not a title like Lord, which means master or God, but a name, Yahweh, what was revealed to Moses. And there are verses in the New Testament that take verses from the old testament that spoke of yahweh and they apply them straight over one to one to the lord jesus christ romans 10 verse 13 quotes from joel chapter 2 verse 34 or so where it says that everyone who calls on the name of yahweh will be saved Paul then picks that verse, and as he's saying those who believe in Jesus will be saved, he quotes the verse from, from Joel. All those who call on the name of the Lord Jesus will be saved. The Lord Jesus must, therefore, be Yahweh, unless the Bible contradicts itself. He also, uh, we also see in John 12, 41, that, that, uh, that, uh, that, uh, that uh, John quotes the, 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 the prophecy of Isaiah, He quotes that section that Isaiah has just seen Yahweh high and lifted up, being worshipped by angels, the Lord Yahweh, God of hosts. Isaiah sees him. John, in chapter 12, verse 41, says, Isaiah said, what he just quoted, he said, and he said this because he saw his glory, Jesus' glory. He's speaking of Jesus and saying, Isaiah said this because he saw Jesus' glory. Do you realize that when you go back and read Isaiah 6 then, the Bible wants you to think that God has revealed in such a way that he wants us to picture Jesus on that throne, high and lifted up, surrounded by angels with his robe filling the temple and smoke uh, uh, all around his majesty. Further on, we see uh, the fact that he is prayed to, something we are told only to do to God himself. Acts chapter 7, verse 59, Stephen cries out in prayer to Jesus. And then explicitly, Jesus is called God in the very text of Scripture. John chapter 1, verse 1. We are told that Jesus, who is the Word, in verse 1, it says that the Word was God. This Word which became incarnate in a body and died for us, He is God. He is from the beginning. In verse 18, it says these two things. No one has ever seen God. The God who is at the Father's right hand has made Him known. No one has ever seen God, but the God who is at that Father's right hand has made him known. So he who, the, the, the Greek is amazing. The Greek is literally he who exegetes the Father for us. He who exegetes the Father, he who explains and opens up and reveals the truth of the Father to us is himself God. That's John chapter 1. In the John chapter 20, Thomas, the the, the disciple who would not believe in Jesus until he saw him, just like everybody else said, and he said, I'll I'll see the hands, I'll I'll touch the side, and then I'll believe, and there Jesus appears before him. Thomas drops to his knees before he even touches him and says, my Lord and my God. He worshipped him. If Jesus is anything other than the eternal God in flesh, and he should have at that moment as a faithful prophet, as our Islamic brothers will say, not brothers, our Islamic friends will say, someone was going to butcher me afterwards for that, uh, as they will say, he was a great prophet. He was a great prophet. He He was the highest and greatest prophet. Really? Then why did he allow people to worship him? When even in John's revelation, the angel rebukes John for worshiping him. No, Jesus received worship, received the title of God because that is just exactly what he was. Romans 9 verse 5, he's speaking about the the Jews, the fact that Jesus belonged to them according to the flesh. He says, according to the flesh is the Christ who is God over all, blessed forever. Jesus is God over all. 2 Peter 1 verse 1, he calls him the God and Savior, Jesus Christ. In Titus 2 verse 13, Titus, uh, sorry, Paul calls Jesus our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Without a high view of Jesus Christ, without a clear view of Jesus being, being Messiah, King, Son of God, God the Son, eternal priest and prophet, God in flesh, without Him, our immune system as a church is weak. Your immune system against heresy as an individual is weak. Sin is very enticing, self-righteousness is very tempting, heresy is very distracting when you have less than a full-orbed, clear view of the Lord Jesus Christ, high and lifted up. Jude wants us to start there. The brother of Jesus, according to the flesh, the writer and the pastor wants us to start there. You can see why Jude doesn't say brother of Jesus, because that warrants absolutely nothing. Being a brother, being the, 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 the bloodline, the, the, the bloodline of, of people in Scripture means nothing spiritually. It, it carries no covenantal saving grace. Only faith through the Lord Jesus Christ is what unifies us to Him. And so He says, I'm His servant, I'm His slave. He is the Lord, He's the Christ, He is God. I am simply a servant. It is, in fact, a great sign that we are the closest to Jesus when we are most willing to submit ourselves to his lordship. Humility to the Lord Jesus is a great evidence of grace. And who is he writing to? You'll, you'll realize that, uh, that in most other epistles, most other letters, usually the, the writer will say, from this person, like Paul, Peter, whatever, to the saints in a certain area, to the saints in a certain church or country or something like that. But, but Jude gives us nothing of the type. He simply just says to those who are called, who are beloved in the Father and who are kept for the Lord Jesus Christ. His, his letter is, is probably what we call a Catholic epistle. That means that, that it's not that we have Catholic letters and Reformation Protestant letters and Baptist letters. Of course not. Uh, uh, but what, what we have is what we mean by Catholic letters is what people call those letters, which were just meant to go all around the place. That's what Catholic means, universal. They wrote a letter, pass it on, read it, preach it, pass it on, take a copy. That's, that's what it was meant to be like. So Jude's writing, and his, his address his address is to those called to those beloved by God the Father, to those kept for Jesus. That's his identifying marker for Christians. Can you imagine, of course, in the old day, uh, in the ancient world, when you wanted to get letters across the known world, and you could because of the Roman roads, but they didn't have a a fully uh, developed postal system. You'd still really what you do. You'd stand on the side of the road and, and you'd find somebody who's going east or you'd find someone who's going to a certain direction and you'd give them a bit of money and say, can you please take this letter, which is sealed. May please take this letter to this person in this town. It's as it's five minutes off the highway as you're going. Is that okay? Can you do that? You would entrust it to them. Maybe it gets there, maybe it doesn't. But you give it to them and you tell them, here's how to get to where you're going. You're going to see a, a large white uh, jail and there's going to be a, a butcher over here and just past the temple of, our, uh, of, uh, of the Areopagus, just past there, you're going to see a house and go up to the third level, knock on the door and call out for the name Peter, Simon, Cephas, something like that. Well, well, as that person would near the area and they've got the letter, they would be calling out to the person whose name they were given. Simon, Simon, I have a letter for you. And we see that the, what, what Jude is calling out, the people that he wants to arrest the attention of to run and, and find a letter, find an epistle, find an address to us from a distant land. In, in, in the ancient world, this letter is to you if you are called, if you are kept, and if you are beloved. Those are the people who this letter is to. Maybe ancient, maybe from another time and another place, but it is for us. I love that he doesn't say to the the perfect, to the self-meritorious, to those who have earned righteousness, to those who are strong. He says to those who have been called, to those who have been beloved by God the Father, to those who have been kept for the Lord Jesus Christ and are being kept. That's your identifying marker. All of it is about God. He is the one who called, he is the one who loves, and he is the one who will keep us. Look at verse two where he does say, to those who are called. When we speak about this call in the Christian life and in doctrine, there is two senses that we can mean. We could mean that the the, the sense in which every human being on earth is, is called. Verbally, externally, humanly, the gospel call goes out to everyone that has ears. Even people who don't have ears will write it down for them. Everybody who lives has an opportunity to hear if we will tell them the call to believe in Jesus. What Jude is talking about is this internal, spiritual, authoritative, effective call that comes through the Holy Spirit. This is not simply the call that, that offers Jesus. This is that authoritative, creative call where God the Father creates by the Holy Spirit a new reality, This is where he calls us out of darkness into light. We can see a comparison of this in Genesis when God was creating the world and he simply said light. He simply called on light, told it to get out of non-existence and come into existence and light up his new world and it did. It was an authoritative command. Let light shine and so it obeyed. And also, likewise, Paul takes up this theme, and in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 6, he says, For God who said, Let the light shine out of darkness, has shone in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. This call is not just an offer of the light of the knowledge. It is a giving. It is a penetrative, active, creative, effective calling that Jesus, by the Holy Spirit, by the power of God the Father, makes the beginning of the new creation occur in your soul. Romans 8 speaks of the same thing. Verse 28 through 30. Uh, for time's sake, I'll go simply straight to verse 30, where he says, Those whom God predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. We've been through this when we did our series on Calvinism, of course, in the first, fourth sermon there, but that it, it, it bears repeating what the calling that Jude is talking about is, is one of the steps in the process of God omnipotently saving you from eternity past. He predestined a people to the Lord Jesus Christ. In time, he calls those same people to the Lord Jesus Christ. The text tells us everybody who is in that sense called is justified, made righteous by faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And everyone who he predestined, called, justified, he will glorify in the Lord Jesus Christ. This is what it means. To be called means that God has set you out and calls on you to become, he authoritatively does it, brings you into the saving work of Jesus Christ. We think, now let's just come back to the context. Jude is writing to people who are in danger of losing their souls. On a human level, we might look at it and say, there's false teaching, there's temptation, there's every reason that young men and women and young Christians in the first generation, they will be enticed and leave the faith that has once for all been delivered. Depart from the paths that the Lord Jesus taught us to walk with our body. So what you really should be doing, Jude, is, is reminding them how how much of a dangerous position they're in. You should remind them how much hangs on their every action and, and, and how perilous their situation is. You should make them feel so responsible, ultimately responsible for their salvation, then they won't buckle. Then they'll make sure that they keep their back straight and stay in line. Right, Jude? Isn't that what you should be doing? But Jude doesn't do that. Jude takes a people that he has every reason to think is in danger of temptation and false teaching. And he says, as I address you, I am addressing you as people that are ultimately called, created in new life by God. I'm addressing a people who are a new creation because of God's doing, not ultimately your own. I'm simply calling you, as Paul will say, to walk in a manner worthy of the gospel, I'm telling you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, Ephesians 4. That's what Jude is doing. You have been called. You are now identified with Jesus Christ because God brought you into his kingdom by his spirit. Therefore, I have a grounds, a basis to call you to righteousness. And then this second phrase, beloved in God the Father. There is, there is a way in which if you're, if you're a part of a shallow church or you're used to shallow preaching, if no one say amen or put your hand up, not ear, uh, if, if you're used to sort of a, a, a shallow, ankle-deep presentation of the gospel... You'll usually get moralistic teachings, how to be a better person. Don't be like those ugly worldly people, or be as much like them as you wish. But just know that Jesus is your pal. And what you you might hear sprinkled every now and then is God uh, 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 was going to punish us. Maybe we'll say that. Maybe we'll get, part, get get away without saying that. But Jesus jumped in and saved you, and he saved you from the train wreck, or saved you from the you know whatever you want to say analogy. And and so Jesus saved you from uh, from 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 punishment and he wants to be your pal. Something loose, shallow, useless like that. Now, now what can, what can as we said before, false teaching produces uh, false living. So also false teaching also leaves plenty of room for weeds to grow in our doctrine. Misunderstanding. Ignorance is, it's bliss, but it's it's horrible. In doctrine, ignorance is not bliss. Some of us will have a view of the gospel that thinks, maybe just out of ignorance, maybe out of, actively wrong teaching, that Jesus, by his conniving, by his cunning, he was able to trick the father who wanted us dead, who wanted to get his jimmies out of sending us to hell, but Jesus was able to to trick God, get through a loophole and get us saved anyway. How rare it will be, right, for people to actually think that, but so often there are people who feel the same way as if they believe that. They don't believe that it was God who pursued them. God, who, who, who the Father in unity with the Son, in agreement with the Son, planned out our salvation. Jesus didn't trick the Father. Neither did Jesus at any point convince the Father. If we could go back moment by moment by moment into eternity past, you would never get to a point where the Father hadn't always wanted with all that he was and by his sovereign decree to save a people in Jesus Christ. It's not as if Jesus had the idea, the son was, was a little bit more loving, a little bit more compassionate, and, and he, was, he was on our side, and he, he beckoned the father and pleaded with the father in order to devise this plan, and God eventually agreed, the father eventually agreed, and then he was fully sold after that. No, that's not the case either, and neither is it the case that Jesus died to purchase the love of the father for us. Jesus did not come to earth, die for us, in order to purchase God's love, which he can then give to us, that after being righteous, God can shower you with his love. Rather, what we, we are told in Scripture, John three sixteen, is that God the Father loved the world, so he sent his Son. He loved his people in the world so as to give his Son to die for them. The cross didn't purchase the love of God. The cross proved the love of God. The cross is the evidence that God the Father was always in an eternal love for a people that he desired to give to his son. That, that's what we'll call the elect, the chosen people from eternity past that he has marked out for salvation in this, in this eternal plan of redemption. Because of how God designed the world, father wounds, that, that is wounds that come about because we have bad fathers, abusive fathers, or no fathers, they are so all-encompassingly corrosive, if you have had a bad dad, a a horrible dad, or a neglectful dad, or or, or no dad, if he is off the scenes, you cannot cannot help but be entirely affected. Every portion of your life, so much of your, your personality, even leaking into your spiritual life, is going to be affected because that is the way that God designed the family unit. You don't get to take an enormous linchpin out of of God's machine and expect it to still work the same way. There are genuine consequences of the fall in this world. Harmful dads, unloving fathers do a destructive work on people who through their, their early years and through their childhood do not learn what it is like to be loved by a father. This is especially destructive in sons. Is especially destructive in sons, but not not hope, not, not ineffective, and not uh, it's not as if it doesn't touch the, the 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 daughters as well. But there is a deep, severe pain known by those who do not know their father's love. Many people don't even know that that is what is causing so much of their personal imbalance, their insecurity, their desire for people's approval. They just don't get how radical the effect is. The reality is that fathers. Because of the way God has made this this world, fathers, you have the ability within your grasp to lessen the amount of people in prison, keep young men from violence, keep them from serious crimes, increase the rate of education and employment, decrease the rates of teenage pregnancy and abortions, decrease the rates of divorce and domestic violence, decrease the, 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 the amount of state dependency and increase the, even the economy of a generation. Fathers have the ability to do that by simply being present, intentional fathers in their children's lives. There's nothing else that can replace it. This is a this is a call on us tonight to remember fathers have an immense duty and honor and privilege, but an immense duty in this reality. You are not just an island. You will be affected by your father. You will affect your father, and nothing can replace that. I mean, praise our heavenly father for providing loving mothers to come in where, and to remain where, where the father is neglectful or gone. But it is no replacement. Praise the Lord for uncles and friends and and church members and and, and pastors who can come in and and do some work of, of restoring that which is lost in a father, but it is no replacement. There is no replacement for losing and not knowing the love of your earthly father, except for knowing the love of your eternal father. There is no healing replacement for it. There's nothing that can entirely fill that hole. God is so designed that that love of our eternal father should be mediated and taught to us through our earthly father where they are gone. Only the love, only knowing, only coming to a, a full understanding of God's love for us in scripture is able to heal that. I wonder how, what effect it would have on you, maybe on our whole generation if we had people People who have had, a, and I say our generation, because, because we, have a, we're a, we have a massive decrease in the amount of fathers present in the homes. What would it mean for so many Christians as, as opposed to the rest of our world that just knows nothing of the value of family, that just doesn't care what a father is, degrades it, doesn't care what a woman or a mother is, degrades it, everything. But if we had a people, a church, who knew the love of our father and, 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 and understood that to such a degree that we were able to really believe the fact that our Father loves us. Some of you have never been loved by a Father, but you have been loved by God the Father. Not just because the eldest son uh, forced him to, convinced him to, but because God the Father has eternally loved you in his Son. That will have amazing effects. First John, the Apostle John reminds us of the same thing, and here Jude reminds us, that you have been beloved in the Father. And yet the eternal love of the Father only comes to us through the Lord Jesus Christ. I'm not gonna stand up here and say that we're all God's children in the same sense. and No matter where you're at, God just loves you. God loves you with an everlasting love. No, God loves those who he has predestined, who he will call and unite to Jesus. If you're outside of Jesus tonight, the call is that you would believe in him and in him receive the eternal love of the Father. And the last promise here, the last part of this as we draw near to a close, he says, and kept for Jesus, kept for Jesus. Isn't it amazing that even at this point, as we would think, Jude, again, would remind them that you need to keep yourselves. If you want to go to heaven, don't you? You don't want to go to hell, do you? You don't want to follow these false teachers into the abyss of condemnation, as he'll talk about in the coming verses. You'd think he'd tell them, you got to keep yourselves. Hold on tight. Don't let go. More church, more prayer, more reading, more, more, more. You have to do and keep yourself. And there is a sense in which he does say to keep themselves. Look at verse 21 in Jude. Jude chapter one, verse 21. He tells them, keep yourselves in the love of God. So so maybe we have right there, uh, uh, we got to ignore verse two. The real important part is you keep yourself in the love of God. But if you understand what we just said about the love of God, the Father, it's an eternal love that is applied to us before we get ourselves in it anyway. We can't get ourselves out even if we wanted to. Look at verse 24. Verse 24 actually reminds us of the same thing as verse 2. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless, to the only God be glory forever and ever. Yes, we must keep ourselves. Yes, we will discuss the importance of discipline and devotion and doctrine. We'll do that. We'll get there. But know this as the promise, as you're walking in the door of Jude's epistle, Your perseverance in the faith is not ultimately your efforts. Ultimately, it is ultimately God's efforts because he is ultimately not commanding you but promising you. We've said this before. I'll remind again, the reason that saints persevere is not only because you keep yourself enough, but secondly, the reason that saints persevere to the end and don't lose their salvation is not even ultimately because God promised you you won't fail. It's because God, the Father, promised his son that you won't fail. You are a servant of Jesus. You are part of the bride of Christ. You are a child of God. But primarily and more eternally, you are a gift of the Father to the Son. You are the bride that God the Father promised his son. So if, if you are lost out of your salvation, it's not just that you failed. It's not even just that God failed you, as such promises tell us. It is also the case that the Father has failed his son. And that going right up the the, the levels into the eternal triune covenant of redemption that goes all the way back into eternity. The reality is that it is impossible for a Christian to lose their salvation because God the Father will not break His promise to the Son. Look at Isaiah chapter 53 as we close out here. Isaiah chapter 53 and verse 11. We'll start in verse 10. Speaking of Jesus' death prophetically, yet it was the will of Yahweh to crush him. He has put him to grief. Here's the promise. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he will see his children. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord will prosper in his hand. Or in Jesus' words of John 6, All those who come to me, I will never cast out. This is the will of the Lord, for which I have come to fulfill, that I will save all those who come to me, and all those who come to me, I will not lose a one, but keep them on to the last day. Look at verse 11, speaking of Jesus again. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. Jesus, hanging on the cross in the anguish of soul, looked forward hopingly, expectantly, faithfully, believingly to the promise that souls will be redeemed by his sacrifice. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous and he shall bear their iniquities. Ultimately, this is a promise of the father to the son. That's why Jude says, not only must you keep yourself, but more ultimately, God will be keeping you God the Father is keeping you for Jesus. What a glorious promise of the gospel. That those who have been purchased by the blood of Jesus, those who are sinners and all of us are, every single human being born on this earth is, by, is a sinner by nature and by every choice that we make. We desire sin, we are cursed and bound up in sin. But God in his eternal plan of love, both to his son and to himself and to us, He sent the Lord Jesus Christ to this earth to die for our sins, to rise triumphantly over the grave, defeat death, and the Spirit has now come to seal us into that victory. What what a voice of triumphant glory Jude starts with. You have been a victor over death, over sin, over the devil. You have a a glorious keeping for you. You have a glorious loving God. You have been called to victory in the Lord Jesus Christ because by faith, You responded to that message. So that is the call on every one of us tonight. Have you believed in the Lord Jesus Christ? Have you actually realized that going to church is not enough, having a Christian family is not enough, but responding to the gospel with repentance of your sin and faith in Jesus' finished work is that one thing that joins you to Jesus and God's spirit will keep you. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for the letter of Jude. We thank you for for his passion and his desire that Christians would contend. That he is not that he is not apologetic. That he is not soft. That he is he is not uh, backtracking or, or or losing his footing, Lord. But he is he is he is forward facing. He has his face like his older brother Jesus, set like flint, to fight for the faith, to establish sound doctrine, to defend the truths of Scripture. We thank you, Father God, that that like Jude, we are. And in, in, in response to Jude's letter, we're being called to defend, to know what we believe, to know how to defend it. But Lord Father God, we, we start here. We start with this glory of what you have done in the gospel. That in the gospel, we see the eternal plan of redemption breaking forth. We see the mystery of the ages clarified for us through what Jesus did. We know ultimately that, that he is the source and the sole foundation of our salvation. We thank you for the Lord Jesus. We thank you that he purchased us that he now keeps us and that he will transform us on that final day into glory, to have a glorious body like his. I pray that those who are here amongst us tonight and and have been in a Christian family but not truly ask themselves, am I in Jesus? Am I forgiven? Have I actually received this news by faith into my soul? Father God, may your spirit please redeem all those that you have called from eternity past, would you, would you call them now into the Lord Jesus? And for those of us who know you, may you humble us, may you make us rely ultimately upon your promises to persevere and keep us, make us not, not lax, not lazy, not lethargic, but intensely motivated because we know we cannot fall if we are safe in the loving arms of our Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you for your gospel and your love and your grace. And everybody said, amen.